You're gonna have to take that towel off your head. If not, this isn't gonna work. Martina Svanovic, welcome to the Larparati podcast, broadcast to you from a diegetic construct that you are currently picturing in your own head. Try as hard as you can not to imagine us sitting in some kind of recording studio. We're on a boat, sailing through a storm of data. Listen, can you hear the wind blow? Voices today originate from Oslo, Norway, Lillehammer, Norway, and London, England. My co-host is Simon Brind. Hello. We're joined today by Nadia Lipsik, Art Research Fellow at the Center of Excellence in Film and Interactive Media Arts of the Norwegian Film School. Hi. So Thank you for a very short intros, guys. <laughs> <laughs> You're allowed to I'm do more sorry. than before. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I think that makes a good intro. <laughs> um, so before we get started, first a quick word from our sponsors. I've still got sand in my shoes, and I can't shake the thought of you. I should get on, forget you. But why would I want to? I know we said goodbye. Anything else would have been confused, but I want to see you again. Lost Memories of Sand by Pembletons of Newport. Because nothing is real until we realise it may be lost. So, Nadia. Tell us a bit about your relationship with LARP. Where did you first discover it? And can you tell us anything about your first game? Good grief, I, I need to still digest this introduction. It was, I was with you, I was traveling, I had the sun in my shoes, and now you're just asking me to jump right into it. All right. Yeah, I'm actually a second generation LARPer. So my father took me to my first Buffalop, and this was in a uh, small region of uh, France, um, nearby Germany's border called Alsace. And in horror, the organizers casted me uh, in a romance with my own father. I was oh. 14. So, yeah, welcome to Buffalop, France. What did you do? Well, I stuck to it, apparently. <laughs> I don't know what that reveals about myself. <laughs> <laughs> no, we just ignored each other in a very awkward way for the whole weekend. And that was it. <laughs> I took a almost 10 years break of LARP and then eventually found my way back towards Nordic LARP when I was more interested in experimental theater and remembered about this wonderful, unknown, well, very, very misknown, at least in France, field that is not. So what was your first Nordic LARP? My first Nordic LARP weren't designed by Nordic designers. It was a, an introduction day in Paris to Nordic LARP and uh, I played a couple of LARPs that day from uh, Lila Teito-Surel and uh, Lille Clérence. So two wonderful French LARP designers. And then my first uh, famous or I guess Staple of Nordic LARP uh, that I played was Huntsville, which uh, really mocked me a lot and my my design thinking as well. I cried about this. I was in pieces at the end of that. LARP. I so was in pieces during the workshops. <laughs> uh, so it's it's a black box LARP. It's played in black box settings, as in very 
customizable spaces uh, in general, no light, no windows, only artificial light that is part of the scenography and uh, sound design. In this case, the scenography was close to that of Dogville, so tape on the floor to uh, create limitations between room and uh, room spaces. The settings was were around death penalty, so following the last hours of uh, a, con- uh, a prisoner that is condemned to death for killing his wife and there are no doubts or mysteries on the fact that he has indeed killed his wife and the ghost of her is also part of the game and the players are separated in both his family and her family. The structure of the game starts with extensive work- workshoppings on uh, relationships and then it's an alternation of the countdown towards this death penalty and flashbacks to reconstruct the story and the relationship of this couple and family. Yeah, shit, no wonder you both cried, right? Like, yeah. oh, yeah. The, uh, they play The Mercy Seat by Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds at the end. Yeah, I was playing Holly, so the ghost, and so... It's a, almost it's a meta character. So during the game itself, you mostly trigger things in other players, uh, which is why I think the workshops were the most intense part for me because that's when you get to hear about what were the relationships of this character. Okay, so I want to move on to talk about your research. Why VR and LARP? such a simple question <laughs> yet I had never formulated it this way I think the thing I always say which is the easy way out of the question is to me it's a match made in heaven as in it it is in both cases about designing for 360 for presence for interactive environments for connect connecting with other people I think uh, in VR most participants also are looking for these strong connections that we can find in LARP and these very engaging spaces where there are hidden interactive potentials and uh, props and things like that. So obviously not all LARPs have all of these elements, but LARP culture has definitely explored so many of uh, the potentialities that we are now discovering in VR. So I would say LARP has 30 plus years in advance on VR design. So other than this accelerationist aspect of, oh, I found the place where we have all the knowledge for this new media, there is also the fact that VR can bring a lot to LARP in terms of opening potentials of having people that are very far away from each other playing in the same space uh, opening the possibility of having completely fantasy world and uh, fantasy laws of physics and uh, actual magic powers that are not throwing a orange piece of paper that is torn and just screaming fireball yeah so (laughs) some things help the suspension of disbelief in virtual spaces although we're not there yet so it's a lot of uh, speculative thinking that's uh, overall, I would say, a lot of connections between the two fields. You, you mentioned presence. Hmm. What about embodiment? Is that a part of the VR experience and how can it be? It can absolutely be. The um, 
advantage I would say that VR has other, well, there are several advantages, but you do not need to go for full embodiment if you want to actually play on more abstraction. That's an, a possibility that VR gives you that is harder to reach for in real life. But uh, yes, you have uh, the opportunity of using avatars. And it's actually quite fascinating to see the, how differently you feel, whether you were an avatar of a giantess or an avatar of an ant, and how your behavior changes and how your perception of the world around you changes as well. So not only the avatar that you pick, but the shift between those avatars are also very interesting design tools, I would say, for um, VR labs to come. Is the avatar analogous with a character? Not necessarily, I would say. It, you, there, are not, there, there is not a single way to approach uh, the avatar that you will use, I would assume. You, can, you could, as a designer, decide to create avatars that will always be worn by the same characters well, that would go on from one run to the next, and that's the avatar of this character. Or that could be more of a, something that is up to the player, maybe the... Maybe it's a very free setting where people pick their own avatar for their own character. And maybe some of them will want to pick an avatar that looks like themselves because that's what they feel the most comfortable using and then customize it with accessories. I don't think there's a single answer to that. You do your work at the film school in Norway. What exactly is your research about? It's (laughs) ever-changing. What I've been recruited to do was storytelling for virtual reality and the angle that I brought was to juggle between tools coming from role-playing and LARP, video games, filmic aesthetics and all types of different interaction potentials and uh, mixing that together to try to find a sweet spot for this new medium. Have you found it? It's hard to say because I have not developed enough in VR and I have not playtested enough in VR. That's uh, where art research is a bit tricky because VR is a, if you want to create a, a project from scratch, unless you're extremely tech savvy and or you have very low expectations on the production value, then you will need to collaborate and you will need to, to fund your project. Film schools are quite anchored in a tradition of having great production value in the projects that they are upholding. And so we're all kind of trying to figure out what's the best approach, as in should we stay in the world of the independent artist that is perhaps mostly in speculation and in prototypes and in lo-fi solutions, Or should we balance it out with more industrial and commercial views to be able to tune up the production value and make bigger of a statement? When I was recruited by the film school, I was recruited along with my colleague Cecilia Levy, who is a traditional scriptwriter and who's wanted to teach herself how to write for VR. And so we've been the first ones to navigate this question at the Norwegian film school, as in, How should we approach that? And from the very beginning, we felt like there was this expectation of us producing an actual groundbreaking, disruptive VR project. And then realizing that uh, we've been recruited because of the experimental potential of our project, which makes it also the hardest to produce and to fund. So 
it's a bit of a catch-22. I played one of your LARPs that you made at that school. In fact, I was working for a design studio and I strong-armed two of my colleagues who've never been to a LARP before into a car and drove them to Lillame to try this, thinking it would be a high production value VR experience and finding that, in fact, it was a Nordic LARP. But they loved it, right? And I loved it. Uh, and you talk about production values, but for that one, it was called Lone Wolves Stick Together. I would say that that's maybe the most professionally produced LARP I've tried. You put a lot of effort into the soundscapes we had on and the, the voice acting and the scripting, the different parts of the set that we walked through. How much more do you need to make a, a big production value VR experience? Well, that's very different because what you've experienced was the, the collaboration between an art researcher and the bachelor students of a film school that also have the support of carpenters and their own teachers. So you got a taste of what it would be like to get a film production behind a LARP. So that was actually part of me studying environmental design and uh, trying to shuffle a little bit the deck of the traditional hierarchy in uh, the production exercises of the film school. So giving the creative leads to the production designers and the sound designers and letting them uh, create rather freely this environment with some constraints for the sake of the design of uh, the LARP and the, the experience of the participants, but a lot of freedom. If all these efforts and all this budget had been given to the VR production, then there would have been a prototype by now. Probably not a very polished prototype, probably just a rather somewhat functional prototype. The thing is, VR is still at its very, very early stages. It's extraordinarily hard to find people that want to produce experimental content. There are a few companies in Norway, but they're mostly industrial, industrially oriented. They mostly work for customers, uh, for brands, and, and, and there are very little cinematic projects or video game projects even. It's a, just a completely different industry and it has its own fields of expertise that the film school does not cover at all. So I cannot rely on my institution for that. And I can hardly rely on the ecosystem in Norway either. So it's a completely different challenge. But I agree that the, the work that has been done on these sets, uh, and I mean the sound sets and the physical sets alike, was uh, phenomenal. What was the intention of this project to merge virtual reality with that set? In a perfect world, I would have been able to monitor the experience of the players in the physical sets and in the virtual sets afterwards and compare their experiences. Uh, I would have been able to do that with a portable EEG, so... Uh, electroencephalogram to measure their brain activity and when more enthusiastic and enthused about something some aspect and see where it works best see what the try to understand uh, how their sense of scale and of comfort or threat is affected by the difference between the physical set and the virtual set those would be things that i would be fascinated to 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 tackle and to 
to try to understand, but I could not um, manage to find proper partnerships with uh, cognitive scientists that have similar interests. So that would have been something that I want, was interested in exploring, but it didn't happen. Why would you want to hook people up to monitors? What is it that you think would be different than having people in real life versus people in a virtual place? What are you hoping to find? What's your hypothesis? There are many reasons, and I do not think that hooking them to monitor will ever replace their real-life experience. I think it's something different. I think there is some form of vulnerability that we can achieve in virtual spaces and in online spaces where we are closer to an abstract version of ourselves. That is something quite powerful that I think would be very interesting to explore more. I think online games and labs have been doing that recently as well with this uh, situation where the creativity of designers has been uh, beamed at the internet medium. And yeah, I do think that there is a lot of things to explore in, in this more, well, paradoxically disembodied version of ourselves. I also think that just the pure elements of changing the complete system of conjectures of the universe around us also opens a lot of possibilities that are hard to even conceptualize right now, as in how to design for that, how to design for a world where we do not need to take into consideration that something pointy is dangerous for our body because that's that's how architecture is built as well right it's it's about what is threatening what is comforting or where do we feel safe so once once we break all these rules of designing spaces then we have a completely new field of playfulness to explore and and i think that's also quite fascinating and i also think that people have this fresh, genuine, childlike approach to VR that they might not have in real life. And I think a lot of people that stigmatize LARP a lot would be more keen to try something in a virtual space as well. Something that Zizek, he talked about repressive desublimination and the fact that you are disembodied in cyberspace or VR gives you uh, more alibi to behave in a way that may not necessarily be appropriate. I'm going to read his quote here. The universe freed of everyday inhibitions turns out to be the universe of unbridled sadomasochistic violence and will to domination. So when do we start? How do you counter that or do you? (laughs) Sorry, that was the Dane in me (laughs) making a comment. Yeah. More seriously, I think, um, Sure, it's probably true, just like it's true that people will have very inappropriate behaviors at LOPs if rules aren't precisely defined and communicated. So just give them an alibi to behave differently with a lustful, perverse character that has uh, no sense of shame and of pity and uh, a world where this is the norm and then people will misbehave. Uh, same probably so I would say what we learned from safety in physical LARP should be used in uh, virtual spaces and that's one of the great assets that our community 
can bring to this world and that it should bring to this world. And I hope we can break through towards this, the digital thinkers and designers that do not know so much about us. We do story diving. Story diving. Yes. What is it? That's a bit of a trick question because we're always trying to find words to not say immersion because immersion has been used and overused and it's uh, lost all of its uh, conceptual juice. It's, uh, if anything, it's uh, misleading nowadays. So story diving is something that I've used sometimes also because I've worked with several modes of experiencing the same environment. Uh, and the three modes that I worked with were dive, swim and float. Diving being the one where you really get as engaged as possible in, in the environment, the story and the interactivity. Swimming, where you are more led, but you can still opt in and out. You can still put your head under the water or emerge. And floating, where you're just uh, following the tracks and staying on the surface of things. I don't know if that's enlightening at all. I, I love it, actually. So you use those three modes in Lone Wolves stick together. First of all, can you just tell us, uh, tell us why, like what what is Lone Wolves stick together? So tell us about the background and what it was. So Lone Wolves stick together is actually the LARP that I'm primarily focusing on with my research. So it's a VR project. And as part of my methodology, because I work with tools from LARP, I state that LARP can be the model for VR experiences and can allow us to playtest those designs. To some extent, of course, there are some specificities to VR that cannot be just taken lightly. But the story, the characters, the basics of narrative interaction and the progression can be playtested physically, which uh, is a big asset considering the development costs. And also considering it allows the LARP itself to be played by the LARP community and to stay in the realm of free experiences as opposed to VR business model nowadays. So Lone Wolf Stick Together is a... Um, a lab for six players that is inspired by the movie Stalker by Tarkovsky. It's self-inspired by the book Roadside Picnic by the Strugatsky brothers. It stages two expeditions that venture a mysterious zone called the woods in hopes of finding the chamber, which is supposed to be a miraculous place where your most intimate desire will come true. And so this, this lab is about their journey and the different stops that they mark on their way towards this this chamber. It's a linear lap in the sense that um, there are scripted flashbacks that will always happen and uh, they will end up making a decision to enter, perhaps destroy, perhaps do something dramatic or live before entering this chamber at the end. That's So that's the overall design of it. So in that LARP, you use those three terms that you talked about now, uh, the floating, the swimming and the diving. How did people react to the different modes? I really didn't know what to expect because that was the first time I was trying to just use this narrative space and elements of character and then explore different variations of it. 
And I, for instance, the float one, which is the most, the lightest design of those three, basically we provide the participants with headphones where they have individual tips for each character. So they follow on the journey of one character, like the participants of the full-sized LARP would. But then they're more free to roam around the sets, which are very narrative sets, and to recreate an interpretation of what they see connected to what they hear in the headphones. And so they also handle the time that they spend in each set they, they decide how they interact with other people. And, and there is a guide that is here to, to tell the story of each spot, each stop, to say what happened to the characters there. And I was very surprised to see that it actually worked really well for the people who tried it. So those people were not LARPers. They were, they were people that would not want to LARP but that are curious to discover an immersive exhibition or experience and, and that want to be able to move at their own rhythm and to be more in control of uh, their experience. And as a LARPer, I wouldn't have thought that this could be a meaningful experience, but it turns out it is. And jokes on me for underestimating the, you know, the, the, the psyche power of what you can create yourself given quality stats and uh, a little bit of narration. So that was for the most superficial one. <laughs> then the swim, which was kindred to what immersive theater is in the sense it was led by an actor and there was actually another actor undercover, a uh, hidden NPC, as we would say, and that, that is there to progressively break the mask and basically give the incentive to the other players to opt in role-playing, show them how we do it. And because uh, this person that we believe is a participant dares to do things and dares to say things, then the others are more likely to follow and to try things as well. This one worked quite well, in my opinion at least. I know I shouldn't have these uh, types of satisfactions and I should just be happy with people experiencing things the way they want. But it was very pleasing for me to see that almost everybody decided to role play the flashbacks. So basically in this mode, the actor would offer different players to step in and role play the flashbacks with them. And the huge majority of people said yes every single time and ended up being more and more comfortable doing so. And at the end, I heard quite a few times the feedback that they regretted not to go for the dive. So is it a failure to make it worthy of an experience of itself or is it good because it triggered a curiosity for a more engaging experience. I don't know, <laughs> but uh, yeah. More data points, isn't it? Everything is more data. More data. It sounds beautiful and powerful, and I'm, I'm really sorry I missed it. You say that having an actor there made people probably feel safer to play, because it, it was like, do you want to come into the space? And then they say yes, and they try it, and they wish they could do more. I think even the dive that was the full experience right yeah. yeah even the dive had 
elements of showing people how to play LARP. It was really beginner friendly in that way because you play two different groups of three going in and you actually take turns playing. And when it's not your turn to play, you're watching the other people. So you're sort of diegetically and extra diegetically looking at each other and seeing what the other people are doing, which now that I say it out loud, it sounds really scary. It sounds like being on a stage and performing, but it didn't feel like that. It felt like the opposite. It felt like their experience was informing my character's experience and their way of playing was informing my way of play. And then there was a clever way of shifting back and forth so you didn't get stuck just watching other people. What's the future of this? What would you do with VR and LARP if you had carte blanche to do anything you wanted? So if I could get the funding, what I <laughs> would like to achieve, it's to create a VR maker's mode that would be designer friendly, where you can basically set up scenes, multiplayer spaces, and allow people to put their designs into VR very easily and very fluidly. So that would be, for me, a very big first step, because then all our formats are available in the virtual space and we will learn so much from playing a lot and also it would be rather gratifying to all the designers that have worked so hard on so many different formats to to see them coming to life in VR and having access to different people as well. I think I'm, I'm curious to see how it will mutate. I do not expect LARP to remain the same thing in VR I expect it to to merge with other forms. And so I kind of want to preserve a bit of the enchantment that I will have by discovering which forms it will take. There are already quite a few experiments that are interesting with actors because the industry, the digital industry, is more familiar with the immersive theater and with theater than it is with LARP. I'm very curious to see if there will be a uh, second breath given to acting through VR, if that's going to open opportunities in that type of work. And now I'm back into thinking about what's likely to happen, which is a lot of gaming (laughs) and very little (laughs) role-playing. But in the perfect world, it would be more role-playing and less gaming. So the space between us, particularly Apposite, given the current world situation. Uh, A very beautiful idea, and I've watched the trailer for it, and it's immensely powerful as a piece of work. Can you tell us a little bit about that project and and what it means and what it is? Thank you, first, for the, the kind words. So The Space Between Us is a hybrid between a graphic adventure game and a role playing game with elements of LARP. It's for two players, so it's a bit less ambitious than Lone Wolf Stick Together. And it, it tells the story of two siblings that get separated and one is shipped to an exoplanet while the other one stays in a post-ecological collapse or slow that is rather cyberpunk and flooded. And the two uh, characters will evolve and age separately but keep in touch by seeing each other through portals and in dreamland, which is the green fantasy, the endless field where they build together their cabin in the trees. 
So it alternates between this branching narrative story that is rather different for each character. They have different themes. One of them, the one that stays in in the cyberpunk Oslo, uh, is questioning, well, we are trying to question this character around um, success and love, while the other one on the exoplanet, the themes are more tied to community and family. And so you observe each other. You are a bit powerless when you <laughs> get the other player facing their life issues on their own world through this portal. But then uh, in between each scenes, you get to role play together in dreams and exchange about what just happened and get advice and also exchange information on uh, the, the characters that are common to both your backstories. So your siblings and your separated. You play this in VR? Eventually. That's what we're aiming for, yes. Brilliant. I would like to ask, now that you can't go anywhere and play anything, because none of us can, because we're all in lockdown, which digital game is tiding you over until we can all LARP again? I've actually been a bit spoiled by my talented friends that have been playtesting all sorts of LARPs online. So I'm thinking about Moholkar and uh, Carolina Soltis, uh, Davido and Patrick Belind that have been using me as a playtester to my greatest delight. This weekend I will be playing Animus by Chaos League and the weekend after that Together Forever by uh, Carolina and David and Patrick as well I think. So quite a few online laps and Forever Dota 2. (laughs) <laughs> which is just good old competitive mobile on Steam, but you know, you do what you gotta do. Does digital gaming give you the same satisfaction as LARPing in physical space? No, it does not. It could potentially, if I was making more of an effort to mentally remove all the distractions around me and engage myself actively operate some sort of cognitive shift to be absorbed by the digital lop but I'm still too much of a slave to the attention economy to be um, able to do that without going to a place where there is a strong spatial disruption and and commit to a lop for a given time yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the VR headset, because then you'll take away everything else and you're just in it. Exactly. No mobile phone in VR, except in front of your eyes, very close. Okay. So thank you so much for coming and talking to us, Nadia. It was truly a pleasure. For the Lark Parati podcast, I've been Martina Svanvik. And I've been Simon Brand. And I was Nigel Lipstick. Thank you so much for having me. Mm-hmm.